Father in heaven, we thank you that we can assemble many times, anytime we want, really. Lord, we live in a free country and we're able to do that. Thank you that we can take advantage of that and be together and encourage one another and sharpen one another and stimulate, as Hebrews says, one another to good works and good deeds for our Lord. Lord, thank you that you loved us and given us a heart for those things. Thank you for worship, private worship, corporate worship. These are all things that you've done for us and planted in our hearts, Lord. What a joy to sing together. Thank you for our children down the hall, all those who are teaching them. A great opportunity for those little ones who are hearing such profound truths from the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would implant them deeply in their hearts, Lord. Cause them to know you at young ages. Give them a life of living for you. A lifetime, Lord. Lord, rescue them. We pray for our student ministry as well. Be with Aaron and others that work with them. We pray that you would give them patience and kindness and, and yet direct them to the Word, Lord. We pray much fruit comes from these ministries. Now, Lord, as we Study your word. Help us uh, hear it and apply it and live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, those days of preparing to go on vacation are always, we're always excited in our home. Um, uh, usually in, in, when we were out west, um, uh, at the end, towards the end of June, we would pack up the RV and we would go really just dirt camping, totally off the grid camping um, with the boys and it was just a blast. I, I love doing that. Getting ready for it was a challenge. You know, you got four boys, and, and you're going up fishing for two weeks and out in nowhere land, so it's all, you know, you don't, don't have all the comforts of home, and so much work to get all that stuff ready to go, you know, and all the boys are jumping, and everybody's packing because there's a goal. We're going somewhere. Well, this passage today, there's a goal. There's two million people going somewhere, and they got to get ready together and be on time. And move as a unit. And it's, if you're into logistics or you're an organizer, this passage is for you. <laughs> because it's flat out amazing how God has prepared this nation, its leadership, and these individuals that make up this nation to get ready to move. To move that many people organized in their areas, all following the Lord as he's hovering over them in a cloud by day and a pillar by night leading them down some treacherous canyons and all the way north to the promised land. So this chapter here, when we get in chapter 10, is where we start that, um, that movement of the nations. So let me just look at a couple of thoughts tonight. I want to just break this passage down into three thoughts tonight. First, number one, a God-given orderly departure for the promised land. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 here. Now in the second year, in the second month... Of the 20th of the month, it's pretty exact, isn't it? We're leaving on vacation, and for us, this would be February 20th, right? It's the second year, the 20th of the month, right? The second year, second month, so forth, right? The cloud lifted up, right? It lifted up over the tabernacle of the testimonies, and the sons of Israel set out on their journey for the wilderness of, from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. After spending over 11 months, almost a year in the wilderness of Sinai, mostly at the base of Mount Sinai, God is now starting to move them towards the border of Canaan. This first year was spent in preparation from 
If we go all the way back to Exodus um, chapter 19, all the way to 10.10, Numbers, that is all the instruction to get ready for this move. That's what we've been doing over these last months uh, as we've been studying this. And so now they're ready. And when we come to verse 12, you kind of see a, a summary of uh, the, the journey from where they're at at Sinai to the wilderness of Paran. I have a, I have a slide of that. I think it's coming up. Um, this gives you kind of an idea of where they were. Let me turn this on. So, so this is what we think is Mount Sinai. This is kind of a blown-up picture. I don't know if you can see this very well. There's St. Catherine's Monastery. I've been to that. Gina and I have been there. Um, this is where they believe it is, at least the Egyptians do. And, and I think this is right out of MacArthur Study Bible, so whoever put this together thinks that's where it is. So this is where they've been for this last year. They've been here. And this is where they've got all that instruction and they're trying to make their way up here. And so this first section is going to show us them moving all the way to somewhere in here where the cloud is going to stop and they're going to stay there for a little while, eventually make themselves to Kadesh Barnea, and then eventually to the border of Canaan all the way north. I'm going to show you some slides in just a minute here of what that territory looks like. So uh, it'll help give you a little more visual of it. This wilderness of Paran is one of the largest and most barrenest wildernesses you've ever seen. It is dry, dusty, there doesn't, there's not much out there. And the Israelites will need to traverse their way through there. You'll see in a moment here where there's just canyons after canyons and cuts through those canyons. And, and they're going to go all the way up there to that spot. And, it, and that, that wilderness covers that whole Sinar Peninsula up there. Now, look at verse 13 with me. So they moved out from the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. Now the march is on, right? They are gathered all these people. We're going to see that in just in a moment. And they begin exactly as prescribed in the previous chapters. The Lord said, the cloud's going to move and you're going to move. And you're going to assemble the way I have laid you out. And we're going to move together in a unit. So all that is starting to take place. The cloud lifts. And, and just like God told them, the people would follow. Notice this phrase, the command of the Lord through Moses. I, I think that's probably referring to the trumpet blows. The, the cloud moves, and then it says the command of the Lord. And then this little prepositional phrase, through Moses, that's most likely them blowing the trumpets. Remember last week we looked at that. There were certain trumpets that blew um, in different uh, singular and, and double blows to, to tell different people to do different things. So all of that's happening at this point. Now, as we drop into 14 down through 28, um, this is how they're going to assemble. And so I, I wrote out, I studied all that, and I wrote it out. And you can kind of look at that. But let me just read this summary of how they're going to get assembled and how, how this all happens. This is, this is a time to go. Two million people all getting on the same page to go on vacation. <laughs> Not really. Not vacation. But, I mean, think about that. We, you know, it's hard to get your family out the door on time, right? This is two million people, children, livestock, a, a tabernacle that's in the center of all that you do. All of that has to be taken down, everything put together, everybody in their place and moved together. It's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? So let me summarize these next 15 verses here. So early one morning, the people of Israel, they awake. And the cloud has lifted. 
and the trumpets are blowing. Each family is packing up their belongings as the tabernacle is being taken down. So the priests are taking that tabernacle down. Remember, they're taking it down, but before they do that, they're covering the, the furniture, um, particularly the ark and the other pieces, so that nobody else can see them, that those that are in the most holy place. Um, all that's taking place. A time for the entire nation to move is now. God has moved. Chapter 2, the camp was laid out. Remember that? It told how everybody was going to be settled. The Levites were encamped around the tabernacle. You had Moses and Aaron on the east side. You had uh, Merari on the north side. You had Gershon on the west side. And you had Koath on the south side. You had the camps of the 12 tribes that were on the outside of the Levitical families. And so he had Judah and Issachar and Zebulun on the east side. You had Dan, Asher, and Naphtali on the north side. You had Ephraim and Manasseh. This is all telling us this in here. And Benjamin on the west side. And then you had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad on the south side. And at the, at the sound of that trumpet on this day right here in, in Numbers chapter 10, the tabernacle began to come down. The Ark of the Covenant was carefully covered in such a way that no one could look at it. And, and uh, though not described here, it seems that the Ark is moved out front of them. If you look down and drop down to verse 33, it says, So they set out from the Mount of the Lord, three days journey, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them. Okay, so it seems that this time, I'll get into this a little more in a minute, that this particular time the ark is moved out front of them. Once the ark is in position, the trumpets blow again. And now Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, all of those tribes march underneath their banner and they come up and line up behind their leaders and they fall in line behind the ark of the covenant. Next would come the Levitical family of Gershon and uh, Merari. And they're carrying the heavy parts of the tabernacle. You remember that. And they have all the poles and, the, and the, the, the skins and all the framing. All of that's coming. And, and so they now line up in line behind uh, the ark. And so here now they, they are lined up. And I think what's interesting about how this is done, because that allows Gershom and Merari to get there to set up the tabernacle before the rest of the furniture comes. It's coming back with Korath. It's a little farther behind. Now, it seems each section that, that it's possible that every time a section was done and ready and lined up, the next trumpet blew. And that meant now Reuben and Simeon and Gad lined up under their banner. And those three tribes are followed by the family of Korath. That's the next ones who have the charge over the articles of uh, the articles of furniture that were in the tabernacle, and they now line up behind them. Now remember, all of those articles of the furniture were equipped with rings and poles so they could carry them all. Um, and so all that had to happen um, as they prepared for this, and the priest would bear them on their shoulders. The next trumpet blast would come from Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin to line up under their banner. So you can see the tribes stacking up and the Levites family stacking up. This one was actually interesting. Look with me at Psalms 80. Sometimes when you're reading through the Psalms, you read stuff and you just go, I don't know what that really means. Uh, and that happens to me from time to time. And uh, I was reading the Psalm not very long ago and got thinking about this and then put it together and thought, oh, he's talking about the nation of Israel when they lined up and when they were moving through the wilderness. Psalm chapter 80, the first couple of verses, this is of course, the great choir director, Asaph, and he is 
leading this great song in a remembrance of things that God has done and calling on God for help. He says, verse 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, who leads Joseph like a flock. Isn't that interesting? You can see the imagery here. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Now look at this. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come save us. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly how they lined up in this great procession onto the, onto the promised land. And so here the psalmist knew that's where the, that's where the furniture, that's where, the, uh, that's where uh, the residing place of God would be packed, uh, the Holy of Holies, right before this tribe. And then many times, it, there's other places we'll see as we go along, that the ark is there with Kohath. It's not out in front. It's out in front during war, and it's out in front in certain times. Here it might be out in front. But a lot of times it's with that Korath tribe that's right in front of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. And so here the psalmist says, stir up, stir up your power and come save us. He's referring to the presence of God who would have been understood with that ark. That's, that's an amazing thought. I, you know, it's so fun to kind of put that together this week and go, oh, that's what that meant. He's, he knew that's where the Lord would be seen in his presence. Now, finally, the last group to come along would be Dan and Asher and Naphtali. Um, they would line up under their banner and bring up the rear of the nation. Now, most likely at the very end would be um, of this really well-designed convoy is all the mixed multitude. Remember, a lot of... Uh, Egyptians and mixed groups came out with Israel and kind of were sucked out of that, almost kind of bandwagoners with what this God of Israel and followed them along and they, they would be in there. Now, I did find a slide. Um, Troy, you have that one? I looked all over trying to find a decent one, but maybe this, this maybe gives us just a little bit of an idea. Um, there, of course, is the ark. Notice it's covered like they were told to do. They show the Shekinah glory kind of shining through it. Um, but then you start to be, all the tribes start to be stacked up. And, the, and with the Levite tribes uh, carrying all the tabernacle and then the next tribes and so forth, all the way back till you find the mixed group of people that would follow them in. Um, I thought that visual was helpful. Um, and, and to see them march. Now, I'm not sure they would have lined up side by side like that because of the terrain I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, they may have been in a, just a long you know, all three of them lined up and then to the next Levite and so forth because the, the train was difficult. But that's a pretty impressive sight when you think about two million people. What's an Orman? What are we, 40,000, 50,000 in Orman? I mean, it's not even close to a million. Can you imagine a million people making their way up to Jacksonville? It's astounding. When you think about it, and think about it, if you're the enemy and you're going, well, these guys are, they're really organized. And they got this pillar of fire at night and this cloud during the day. And they got this ark out in front of them. In fact, it must have really stirred up a lot of concern. Um, and so this, this is very organized. This is quite the group that's moving out. Um, now, when you think about two million people being assimilated in a really desolate world, with a destination they've never seen before, they've only heard about it, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I... Uh, you know, we told our boys, hey, we're going to Medicine Lake. And they knew it every year. We went to Medicine Lake. They were so excited about it. Boys, we're going somewhere where 
It's not going to be easy to get there. <laughs> it's not exciting. You know where you're going. Hey, we've been there. This they don't know. They're just trusting God that this promise that they've had ever since Egypt, that God was going to bring them into a promised land, would be all that God said. And so here they lead out believing that God was taking them there. Now, notice they're led by a divine cloud. They're led by an ark and a covenant. The tabernacle's in the middle of them with tribes surrounding them. And such a sight must have been quite impressive. Uh, it, it, it has an army marching type of feel to it as you read it out. I'm not sure that it's all squared off like the picture has it. And, you know, you got kids and, and livestock and all kinds of things. I don't think it was as neat as they make it look sometimes. But yet it would have been impressive. And, and, it, and it's not surprising that the pagan nations became very concerned about it. I, I was thinking around, well, where, where would we see in the Bible where the nations around them would be nervous with them? And then I thought about Rahab. I think she gives us very good insight. Go to Joshua chapter 2 with me real quick to your right. There are a few other places, but I think what Rahab says is, is quite stunning because it helps you realize that the recon that was going on out there, um, they knew, the nations knew of the nation of Israel. Now, of course, this is after wandering around in the uh, desert for 38 years plus, um, this is after that, but they're still very much assembled the way God would intended them, and we kind of see an idea of what they thought of these people. So remember, the spies have been sent in. Rahab hides them, um, and and she tells them she takes them upstairs and puts them in among the bushels and grain sacks and all that, and says, "Hide, hide here on this roof." And and she said to them, "I know, verse nine, that the Lord has given you the land." Isn't that interesting? I know what the Lord's doing here. And that the terror of you, listen to this, the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all that the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, you, you, you utterly destroyed them. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's, that's the memo they're getting. <laughs> and I, I read that today and I thought, wow. That array of that lineup of this nation, 2,000 uh, people deep, really was a force that God used. And if they would have just trusted them, they would have been in that nation earlier. But I think the real key is not just the size. The size is amazing that two million people could be that assembled, march in such a way. But it's the fact that the Lord was with them. And he showed himself that he was with them. Clouds just don't form over a nation. Pillars of fire just don't happen at night. An ark of the covenant that is out there leading them that later people touch and die and diseases come to nations that take it captive. I mean, this is the power of God. And that's what's at the center here. And sadly, as we'll see, even next week as we get into chapter 11, they begin to murmur and rebel after seeing the greatness and the glory of God 
And soon they lose their confidence in God. And we'll see that at the border. They lose their confidence in God. And they are much more afraid of man than God. Well, second thought, the goodness of God that draws the stranger. This is a fascinating little section in here. I had never really worked through this and understood this until I studied this. Verse 29, then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Raul, the Mennonite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out to a place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good. We will do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather I will go to my own land and relatives. And then he, Moses, said, Please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be eyes for us. So it will be if you go with us, and whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. Now, these are some interesting verses, and I think many people have tried to figure out who this Hobab is. Um, I read quite a few commentaries on this, tracking this guy down, trying to figure out who he is. The Bible here refers to him as Moses' father-in-law, and that would actually make him Jethro. So either Jethro has two names um, or multiple names, or this is someone else. And we know that Jethro is Moses' wife's father, Miriam, right? So now we see if Jethro, um, he, he, he certainly is from this area. He would have been around in this area. Moses worked for him for a long time. He would have known the wilderness. He would have known the pathways. He would have known how to get through some of these things. But think about how old he is. He's, he's Miriam's father. Moses is now 80. So is he 100. <laughs> you know, they're not living that long, you know, as, as long as they used to. And so I, I start thinking, I don't think this is Jethro at all. Furthermore, we come to a passage in Judges chapter 4, verse 11, and here Hobab is mentioned again. Now, this is an important passage to help us figure this out. Who is this guy, and why does Moses want him so badly to go with them? Verse 11 in Judges chapter 4 says... That Barak, whoop, that's not the right one. Oh, man, I got the wrong passage down. I know what the passage is, but I think I wrote the wrong address down. What did I do with that? I'm so sorry. Somebody telling me who it is? I can't hear you. It is? I'm not seeing it. Let me explain what it is. I've, I've kind of lost my way there a little bit. Um, there we see where Hobab is mentioned in Judges. Now, if that's true, the nation has already fought all the wars um, and, and been in the land and have now rebelled and had some problems in Judges. This is a long time. Everybody's dead. Aaron's dead. Moses dead. Joshua's dead. Certainly Jethro's dead. And so we start to begin to realize that this Hobab is not Jethro. Um, and and, and what, here's what I've landed on, is I believe that Hobab is the son of Jethro. And, and like in the Bible times, and, and this is a really good point, is that the son of the father would inherit everything at the death of the father. He would be blessed and be given. And I think even to the point that he's given the title as the father-in-law to 
um, Moses here. And so this is doubtlessly his son. And I think what's really interesting, is it seems that Moses is inviting this Hobab to be a company with them um, because like his father, who may or may not be alive still in, in, back in Numbers chapter 10, this guy was, was born and raised in this ter- terrain and he certainly would have known his way to Canaan and he would have known the wilderness of Paran as well. Um, I, I think what really catches my attention is this guy does go with them. Moses convinces them to go and he stays with the nation so long that his relatives end up in the book of Judges. So they stay with them, even though they're Midianite. Uh, they're, they stay with this nation. And so something had impressed them greatly about God, and they wanted to remain with his people. And, it's, it, and here it seems that though he's unwilling, and back in our text, he's unwillingness to go. Moses has that persuasive uh, power to bring him along. And otherwise, I think, think the scriptures would include that. Now, in Judges, it indicates that his family is there. So, so not only does he commit here, but that family stays with the nation. Now, some commentators suggest that Moses inviting Hobab was uh, a lack of faith. It was interesting. I read quite a few people on this and said this was one of Moses' weaknesses. We see him, he has a weakness later when he strikes the rock and um, those type of things. But uh, I, I just didn't find that as to be true. I, I, I think God greatly endowed Moses with wisdom and knowledge. And certainly, and here's the reasoning, because they say, look, God's there, God's leading them, the, the ark's there, the pillar of fire's there, the cloud's there. Why would Moses go get this guy to lead them through the wilderness? But I think God just gave him great, great wisdom and knowledge. And I think he makes a wise decision, and he leads these people correctly through some very treacherous terrain. And, and we see that. Now, I want to show you the next slide to kind of help you understand what they're going through. Um, this slide is up on, this is a picture I took up on top. This is looking dead north. Um, this is top of what we, they believe to be Mount Sinai. Uh, this is dead north this way. <laughs> now, this is the valleys that they would have been down in. And... <laughs> From my eyes view, when I looked at it standing there, I said, there's just no way through this. But the more I looked at some topographical maps, these valleys worked their way through this wilderness. And somebody had to know how to get those people through there. Next slide maybe shows another kind of picture of that. This is a little lower down the mountain. This is maybe about halfway up, climbing up Mount Sinai. Uh, See, the sun was up a little bit. But I think a little sharper picture. I mean, this is what it was like. It's just nothing but straight up and straight down mountains in that area. I think there's one more, Troy. This is down just, just by Mount Sinai or down in the valley. And uh, most of the guides and people believe that this is where that nation assembled. And they got in order here. And then they would have passed right where this road is. They would have passed right through here and made their way north. So I think Moses was very wise in the fact that he chose to find someone who would help him get through that area. And so I disagree with some of the commentators that think it was a lack of faith because they, they look at this and they see Moses pleading with him. Uh, this man's trying to go back to his hometown, but, um, he, but Moses convinces him. He'll, he, and, and he does go with him because we see his descendants uh, throughout the nation. Now... I think it's really important to recognize that 
when you follow the Lord, God has done something to help you see something great about him. And I, I think probably Hobab uh, saw this. He saw some of the mighty acts of God. Uh, Jethro saw it. When Jethro came to help Moses, Moses was struggling. He was trying to lead the whole nation. And um, Jethro comes down and gives him some advice on those things. When he came first meets Moses, they've just come out of Egypt. Uh, Exodus chapter 18, verse 9. Jethro comes and he, the Bible says he rejoices over the goodness the Lord had done to Israel. He saw what God had done. This, is, this would be Hobab's father. He, he rejoices over it. In fact, the verse says that he sees the wonders of what God had done. And so when people follow God, we, we, we see the wonders of it, right? When I got saved, I began there. The Lord opened my heart that, man, Christ died for me. You saw the wonders of what God has done. And so I think of a man who's wanting to go back. He's wanting to go a different direction, but he sees the wonders. And doubtlessly, Moses is sharing that. He says, everything, the good the Lord has done for us, we'll do for you. And he shares the great promises of God, the great wonders, and this man follows him. And so, so much of decisions, I think, that were made from this man were because he saw what God did. He saw a nation get organized in a day to get ready to move, it seems. He sees them line up the way they were taught and the way they were instructed. He, he saw all of this happens, and soon he is there to follow in as well. And then we see his descendants even further on. Now, when the nation of Israel was walking with the Lord, um, we see the psalmist record so much of this. One of the things that you'll see in the psalms is they often speak of the wonders of God, and then they say, tell others. Listen to some of these. Let me just read them to you. Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And then this that I may tell of your good works. That's, that's what happens when you, when, you, when you come to know our God and Savior through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to know who God is, you want to tell of your works. This stuff is all through the Psalms. Psalm 78, 4. We will not conceal them to our children, but tell them to the generations to come of the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. One of the things I love about what's going down, good is going down the hall right now, is we have some of our best teachers down there telling the children of the wondrous works of God. They need to hear that. People don't know that anymore, right? They, they don't know the Bible. They, they make up their own God. We teach what, who God is. Teach of his wonders. Listen to a few more of these Psalms 96.3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Psalms 107.22. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Tell of the works with joyful singing. The good things that God has done should be in our music. And I think it is. Psalms 145.6. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. So I, I think Moses, you know, so, well, how does Moses convince him? This guy wants to go back. He's got, all, he's got family. He's got all these things back in wherever he's from there where Moses once worked. He wants to go back. But I, I think Moses probably showed Hobab what God had done. And I think Hobab gets captured with this God of Israel and wants to come along with him. And so much to the fact his descendants and descendants stay with the nation. And we see them all the way into the book 
of Judges. Now, I think we should be captured by the wonders of a great God and Savior. Are you captured by the wonders of a great God and Savior? A cursory read just through the life of Christ should capture you. I mean, he just steals waters. He, he has Peter pull coins out of a fish's mouth. He, he makes the deaf hear and the blind see. Just the wonders. And then the greatest wonder is he goes to the cross and the Father takes all of our sins, past, present, and future sins of all of the elect and places them on him and judges, them as, judges him as though he committed them and redeems all of us. It's the most wonderful act that's ever been done, isn't it? And we marvel at that. And so I think one of the things we should do, and we should do this well, is we should cast a beautiful and biblical picture of the glory of God constantly. We should sing loudly and brightly of the great God we have, preach of his greatness and his glory, tell the next generation. It's a, gloom, it's a gloomy world out there, isn't it? Everybody's chasing the dollar. Their lives are just like a dog chasing the tail. We can tell them of what God has done. That's why it's so fun to read the Bible together, right? A lot of you are reading your Bible through or you're, or you're in soul care or you're in some kind of discipleship. You get in those passages and they should store your heart. This is what our great God and Savior has done. And we should be free to share that. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Remember Romans 1.16 says it's the power of God. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. Reconciles men and women who were once far off and makes us children of the king. And then we join a pilgrimage, don't we? The nation of Israel is on a pilgrimage here in the Old Testament. But we are too, aren't we? You know we're heading to the Holy of Holies? That's where we're headed. We're headed to the promised land. We're headed to the residence of God Almighty to spend eternity with him. Sometimes I think of old hymns. I like some of those old ones. Francis Rowley wrote in the 1800s, I will sing of the wondrous story. Do you remember that old hymn? It says this, I will sing the wondrous story of Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. I was lost, but Jesus found me found the sheep that went astray, threw his loving arms around me, drew me back into his way. I was bruised, but Jesus healed me. Faint was I from many fall. Sight was gone, fears possessed me, but he freed me from them all. Days of darkness still overcome me. Sorrow's path I often tread, but the Savior still is with me by his hand unsafely led. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then I'll hear, then, 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 we'll be, then he'll bear me safely over where the loved ones I shall meet. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. I don't know why that song popped in my head today uh, when I went and looked up the lyrics of that. Lord, that is what we do. And, and I think that's what the apostles did. There's this never 
ending, great unfolding story of the gospel that's going to go on into eternity. And so these apostles started preaching the wonders of a Savior's birth. They started there, right? And then they preached of his anointing that God selected him, gave him, brought him to this earth to fulfill the plan of God. And then his life and ministry, and they preached his life and ministry. And then they preached his suffering and his death. And they preached his resurrection. And they caused people to wonder and marvel of who this was. Well, just think if we could get the wonder and marvel of Jesus on our tongues and speak it more often to people. There is no one greater. He holds all things in his hand by the, by the word of his power, right? Hebrews chapter 1. And so this wonder of truth, the apostles were gripped with it and they preached forgiveness. They preach that you can be forgiven for your sins and it comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, not through your works again alone, but through his finished work. And, and by the millions, people have come to know Christ through the years. And that gathering in heaven is just going to be astonishing. It's the end of the pilgrimage, isn't it? We're all going to end there together with the saints of old. Because and, and, when you study this, as much as I have to study to get ready to teach it, your, your mind just gets so caught up in the fleshly end of it. It's hard. You know, what, what was it like having kids in this? You know, did you tear down a tent? What were you living in? How, how did you get that down and get in line in time? And what happens if you didn't get in line in time? I mean, all those things go through your mind and you just wonder. But at the end is this promised land. And yet that's our life, right? It's full of sickness and our own sin issues, right? And the sin of others we have to deal with and, and struggles, right? But at the end, there is a promised land. And we are spend eternity with our Lord in glory. And so, I, this is my personal commentary. I think Moses won him over with the wonders of God. Do you want to go back to the wilderness? You don't, don't you want to see how this is all going to end? Hobad, look. There's two million people assembling at the orders of God. The cloud is moving. Aren't you interested in where that's going? My thoughts. I think Hobad said, I do. I want to see what this God of yours does. And he went on with them. And the whole family stays for generations. Last thought here tonight, Moses' prayer for traveling mercies. Look at verses 33 through 36. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. With the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the, for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, and I think this is his prayer, Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Well, there are many commentators that kind of argue over this passage of Scripture. Again, um, when you get into narratives, people, lots of people have different views on stuff. But I think this is just reflecting the beauty of a gracious God to dwell among his people. And these verses seem to tell us that, again, the ark is out front, even though verses 17 and 21 say that Korahs are carrying all of the furniture. I think it's out front right now. And... And I think there's times it's out front and sometimes it's in the middle, depending on there's times where they go to war and it's out front. But, but I think what's happening here is there's a focus on the expression of, of Moses that he has great faith and confidence. 
in the Lord. Rise up, O Lord. Rise up. Journey ahead of us. Let your enemies be scattered, right? That scene of that, those tribes, if you were a nomadic tribe that was out there and you saw that, that would probably make you scatter. And I think what Mo- Moses is doing is he sees that there is a real physical movement. There's a physical movement of all these people to the promised land and, and, and there's hostile warfare out there. That trip could be dangerous. He's got a bunch of slaves that have come out of slavery and he knows that. And so he cries out to God, go ahead of us. Get, get ahead of us, Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee away. And so I think he also sees a spiritual aspect of this very physical movement of these nations. And he knows that there's an enemy waiting for them. Ultimately, Moses saw God out in front. We see that. But when they stop, notice he says, Lord, return. Come back into the midst of the myriads of thousands of Israel. He wants him in the center of that camp. He wants him not to leave them. His trust is in God, not in himself in organizing this great group. So as I thought about and I read this prayer, I thought, well, I wonder if this was the original prayer you give before you leave on a journey. Do any of you do that when you get ready to go and you got all the kids in and you stop and say, hey, kids, let's just pray that the Lord will you know, give us journey's mercies, I think. Is that the word we say? Journey's mercies? Travel's mercies? Something like that. Um, uh, and this may have been the original one, right? I know a, I wrote down a prayer that I prayed several times with our boys. I said, Lord, please go before us. Guide us, protect our way. Um, be with us when we travel. Be with us when we stop. Cause us to enjoy your presence wherever we are. You know, there's a prayer I used to pray with the boys uh, all the time as we would travel and do things together. But the Bible's full of this, right? We know these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, wherever you're going, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I think that's what Moses is doing here. He's saying, Lord, go before us. Plow the road for us. Make it safe for your people. And then when you stop, come be back in the midst of us. Be right here in the middle. We cannot do this without you. And of course, that was, I think, Moses' great plea at Mount Sinai. He says, I'm not going unless you go. I think we as Christians, we live in a constant battle of our flesh, right? And often we want to take the low road. I think Moses is showing the high road here. We want, and I think the low road is this. We want to do things on our own strength. I think that's the low road. And, and, and because of that, we suffer, don't we? At times we make poor decisions. Um, we don't enjoy the moment because we're doing everything on our own strength. So that vacation that was supposed to be super fun was more of a fight between mom and dad. Um, or you didn't do the things that you wanted to do because we took the low road. We tried to do things on our own strength. I think Moses' prayer shows us the high road to follow God's word, to follow his promises, to ask for his promises. Clear the road for us, Lord. Protect us from your enemies. And when we stop being in our midst, be with us. It's, it's so convicting to study at this level, right, when we have to teach regularly. I said, Lord, why haven't I prayed that more often? Lord, be in our home. Be right here with us. Now, I know he is, right? The Spirit dwells us as believers. But there's a sense of calling the Lord to be a part of what we're doing. Be here with us, Lord. What a beautiful thing. And I think that strengthens you, right? I think that strengthens you to do things for God. The great, really, father of modern missions, William Carey, said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Why don't we expect great things from God? 
I just, we just don't sometimes, right? We, we try to check off our Bible reading. We try to get to church. We try to do those things. But are we expecting God to do great things? What are you expecting him to do? What do you see in the scriptures that you can correlate with your life and say, God, you've not changed. You're the same God that was in the, with the God of Israel. You're the same God. You do great things. Help me trust you for those things. I, I think it would probably, number one, affect our prayer life. We'd pray different, wouldn't we? When we expect great things. And I think Carrie was right. If you expect great things from God because he's a great God, you'll attempt great things. What do you need to step out and trust the Lord on? See, this is, this is our God. And one of the things that we've understood in biblical theology is we realize this is our God. He has not changed. There's not some different type of God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. This God does marvelous things. And, and it's a joy to watch people in our own congregation, missionaries around the world, who really believe in God doing great things. And they step out on faith and go, God, you said, you know, here we go. Will we ever live like that anymore? Or does America make it difficult for us to really trust the Lord? I think ultimately Israel's view of God was exposed. They get to the border. They have a fear of man more than they have a fear of God. And isn't that our problem? We fear man more than we fear God. But, brothers and sisters, God set us on a pilgrimage. He saved you, right? And Paul says, look, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's got a plan, right? He's got a plan. He's got a pilgrimage for each and every one of us, young and old. He has a pilgrimage for you. Are you on that pilgrimage? Or have you got off track somewhere? Or maybe, and this happens to some of us, we sit on the side of the road. And everybody else is pilgrimaging by us. And we're tired and frustrated. Brothers and sisters, we know the Spirit supplies the strength to do those things. He'll do it through the Word. He'll motivate you. And He'll give you a desire, as He did the Apostle Paul. Finish the race. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Because there's a crown laid up for those who are longing for the Lord. And that there lays a key, right? I think most times, many times, we're just not longing for heaven. We're longing for things on this earth. We're longing for better things that will not finish with us. And so, uh, as I continue to read this and look at this and step back and see God organize this massive nation to move and all of those things, I can't help but realize you and I are on a pilgrimage. And I think that's what caused Bunyan to write the Pilgrim's Progress. He saw a pilgrimage. He saw, he saw himself moving to a kingdom. And he wrote on it. And, and that's why Pilgrim's Progress is such a blessed thing to read. It reminds you there's dangers and traps, there's swamps, there's giants, there's all kinds of things going, but you keep your eye and you keep the word with you and you pull it out and you remind yourself of those truths and you keep going. Father, thank you for the nation of Israel. It is such a lesson in so many ways, Lord. Here, this nation, which by next week as we come, certainly time moves fastly in the narrative, but... We'll see in chapter 11, they're complaining and fire comes and destroys some of them. It doesn't take them long before they're murmuring and complaining. The God who split seas, the God who organized such a massive group of people to do things his way and 
bring about his will and lead them by pillars of fire and clouds and an ark and all of that, they turn against you, Lord. How can that happen? We sit here in America 4,000 years later and we marvel at it. How can this happen? And yet, we've seen you, God, do a marvelous work in saving and rescuing us from our sins. It's the most greatest work you've ever done to rescue sinners and make us your children. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not lose our marveling at you. We would not give that up with the tension of the world. Lord, help us to be those who constantly marvel and not only marvel ourselves, but tell the next generation and tell those who are around us and in our jobs and on our places we live and all over, Lord, that we would tell of the greatness of our God. Lord, I pray you'd help us not to be ashamed. We would speak boldly your truth, Lord. Father, we do want to come to the promised land, but we don't want to fail along the way. And I know, Lord, wilderness experiences are good for us at times. We sometimes need to wander around a little bit as you discipline us. But Lord, we want to stay on the path. We want to, we want to finish well. We want to fight that good fight. We want to keep that faith, Lord. And we want to keep longing to see your face all the way to the finish line. And so, Lord, help us stay focused. I pray as we study Israel that we would learn from their mistakes, marvel at the God who cares and loves for them so patiently, and run our race with a goal of glorifying you. Lord, thanks for everyone who's come out tonight. Lord, bless them, Lord. Thank you for our children down the hall. Bless them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.